100% we could argue that we've now crossed into a part in human history where many corporations are legitimately more powerful than most nations. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this edition of the Crypto Basic Podcast. My name is Kareem Baruke. I'm here with my co-host, Brent Philbin. Hey! <laughs> and we are super excited to have with us Rob Viglioni from Zencash. How you doing, Rob? Hey, guys. This doing is well, thank you. This is your third appearance on the show. We're super happy to have you. Lucky three. I, I'm, I'm pumped for this one. This one in particular, I think, is going to be a lot of fun. I mean, they, they all were previously. No, I agree completely. So part of the reason why this episode is going to be so much fun for us is uh, this is not an interview style show, but rather we're talking about a concept. This is our second edition of our roundtable episodes. It's a new series that we created so that we could just talk more openly and be able to tangent and explore a topic really deeply. And today's topic is going to be game theory in crypto. And we can't think of a better guest you know, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about your background before cryptocurrency so they understand how qualified you are for this conversation? Well, yeah, I, I guess for the, the the whole economics and game theory part. So my I am an ABD on a PhD right now for which means all but dissertation. So I <laughs> I've uh, I've been d- distracted a little bit with the whole Zen thing, but still need to wrap up that uh, defense. And then I'll have my PhD in financial economics. So I've uh, I've studied you know traditional economics. Uh, financial economics, and then actually crypto economics uh, academically. So not I, I think it's very important to be a practitioner in anything that you claim to be an expert on, but it's it's equally important, maybe uh, a completely different dimension to study something academically. Um, and th- this is something I think gets very underrated and, and uh, kind of the, um, uh, I, I don't know, some of the philosophy of some of the people in this industry is they, they very much underrate uh, academic uh, research and, and academic thinking. I think the sweet spot, though, is to combine it, not to completely discount it. Because, you know, to, to be frank, academic thinking is extremely rigorous. Uh, and oftentimes what discredits it is you have um, people with academic credentials then kind of voicing their opinions and editorials and stuff. And then people say, well, hey, look, academics are very opinionated. But the reality is like true academics is science. Uh, and there's scientific rigor and scientific standards to ever declare anything to be sort of truth. And in the social sciences, like in economics, we really don't have tautologies like we do in physics. So I, I studied physics and mathematics before I did um, economics. And, you know, in, in physics, you have very simple, like, uh, you know, or, or not simple, but very, very clear kind of uh, physical truths. Uh, and like gravitational constants and other other physical characteristics that we can quantify very specifically. In social sciences, that's not the case. We use econometrics, we use statistics, you know, which is fancy statistics, really, to try to converge on what we think is truth with some uncertainty. Uh, and then we cl- declare this like a hypothesis that we're testing everything against. So that, that's my background is I, I come from this kind of a mix of the, the academic world and also obviously a practitioner of of what we we're talking about here by being a co-founder of Zen. So pretty sick, by the way, that uh, having a major cryptocurrency is just something you're doing on the side while you get your dissertation. <laughs> uh, no, but, uh, I have something to add here. Just yeah. for anyone who's confused as to whether we may know what we're talking about, even though we constantly tell you we don't, that intro should make it very clear that even when we might sound like we do, we don't. This is somebody who does. <laughs> <laughs> no, and it's it's really exciting, Rob. Honestly, um, 
at least on the show, like I'm a big believer also in the value of academic thinking and how much it's underrepresented yeah. in the space. That's not to say that it's everything, but it really is one right. of the things that, for example, puts, you know, you guys or like a partnership with IOHK aside because it's really looking at the rigorous questions. Like once you're dealing with very, very complicated questions, it's not going to be just one guy in his garage figuring it out. You need like a rigorous process and a rigorous methodology to get to you know, the best solutions. So yep. now you, one of the things you brought up though, was that in economics and sociology, you don't really have the same ability to get to the quote unquote right answer as right. you do in, let's say physics, chemistry perhaps. But wouldn't you say that in, in a way, game theory is one of those like steps that takes the social sciences and brings them a little bit closer to like a quantifiable world where we can start modeling things in such a way that we can actually make accurate predictions and things like that? Of course. Absolutely. So, you know, and this is one thing is, you know, the, the non-secular argument would be to say, hey, you can't really, you know, model the behavior of a billion human beings specifically or very accurately. Therefore, we can't figure out anything. Uh, th that would be the non-secular. So, and I think that that's oftentimes the, the logical trail as you kind of like find like one little like chink in the armor and then declare nothing is valid. Not at all true. So, you know, economics does provide very, very uh, strong frameworks to evaluate human behavior. And game theory is one of the strongest frameworks for human behavior. Um, so what we can do is we can we can use mathematics. We could use you know, economics to really model like a, a framework for how people should behave. Now, of course, human beings don't always behave completely rationally. So you can come up with some rational framework for how people should behave. And then maybe on average, you know, people tend to behave that way because if they don't, there's consequences. So kind of in the long term, as you converge to some average equilibrium, people tend to, you know, converge to some like a uh, decision set. Um, but of course, you know, everything's fuzzy in, in economics. It's fuzzy because we're human beings. Uh, and then what's even further makes it even like more fuzzy is Lots of human beings interacting together in a dynamic, chaotic environment leads to chaos theory. You know, it, and the, the, the characteristics of chaos theory are not something that you can very cleanly, like, you know, like what you do in intro economics, even at the PhD level, intro economics is well, maybe not intro, but the, the start of PhD economics is you start off with very simple models. You take some fancy derivatives under constraints, you know, and then you, you kind of like, uh, extrapolate from there how systems could converge into some sort of equilibrium, dynamic equilibrium. But it gets even more complex in reality because in reality, we, we have a very chaotic, complex environment. Fuzzy being the game theory term of like the you can't hit the Nash equilibrium with the game, right? Uh, similar. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, within game theory, that would be the the, the example of fuzzy. Uh, fuzzy, uh, just any kind of equilibrium that, that I think about. And, and, so I'm not, I'll, I'll caveat this by saying I'm not a game, a, a game theorist. That's not, that's not my, uh, you know, my, my specialty. I took one PhD level course in game theory. In terms of game theory, I can talk to the basics, you know, at the PhD level, but I'm not like a, you know, a critical thinker in game theory where I know cutting edge research by any means. So when I think about equilibriums, I think about like the macro, you know, macro economy and equilibriums that you would see there. And one of the things that you mentioned, Rob, is that, you know, human beings don't always act in a rational way. And that's what we've really seen, like mm -hmm. the, the resurgence of behavioral economics. But even I would argue that it's even sometimes hard to properly model what rational behavior is because yes. one of the examples that we gave is, you know, you have this classic experiment where you take one person and you say, okay, here's $10, split it up however you want between yourself and this other person. Mm -hmm. And then the second person only has the option to accept or reject the offer, right? And in theory, the rational decision, if you're offered a one to nine split, you only get a dollar, yep. you should still take it, right? 
but yep. we we've seen because it's one dollar or no dollars. So yep. we say, well, people don't take it and they reject it in order to punish the other person. Therefore, that's not rational behavior. Right. But you could even argue, well, maybe it is even more rational behavior yes. because you can't take it away from the human interaction. This person, st- it's this right. experiment's not happening in a vacuum. They're still trying to influence the other person's behavior by letting them know if you're going to screw me over, I'm going to screw you yeah. over. You know. So this is where I I had some issues with kind of like the the academic uh, game theory. And and of course, because I'm not a game theory researcher, I'm sure the field has gone down a far more richer, complex uh, dynamic where they evaluate kind of evolutionary approaches to things. But, you know, in in a classroom setting, this was exactly one of the experiments, you know, you do in a classroom setting. And it's a sense of fairness that people have. And I think that this is a social constraint that we've evolved to have to keep billions of human beings kind of like, quasi peacefully and quasi productively working with each other without killing each other right this is a very weird thing for any you know large animal group to be in such large dense populations and not butcher each other especially for very clever animals like human beings is you know we could if we took just like the and this is what we do oftentimes in like academic game theory is you take a very simple math construct like uh, of course yeah you could take one penny and you're better off in that scenario. And the other guy takes $9.99. Uh, but it's a huge sense of injustice that in reality, like this is what keeps us in groups, you know, kind of productively and peacefully is having this sense of social, you know, this justice. I, I, I hesitate to use the word social justice because that's sort of a political term these days. But it is a sense of justice that we have in social settings. Yeah, com- completely. Now, you know, you could even say that it's ingrained so deeply because you see that behavior modeled in even mm-hmm. other mammals, you know, like you, there's even yeah. examples of bats not sharing like meals with the bats that like cheat and stuff like that. So it makes you think yeah. that any uh, organism that's cooperating in groups has to develop these, whatever you want to call them, heuristics, morals, yeah. shortcuts, whatever it is, but it's very real. And sometimes it is rational mm-hmm. in the bigger sense. Yeah, completely agree. All right. So do you want to start maybe talking about the treasury voting system? Is that somewhere you want to start? Or is there any particular place that we could start about game theory and crypto? Yeah, no, sure. So I, I guess, like like I was saying before we even started uh, rolling the, the footage here was uh, there there's kind of a set of things that we, you know, are, are very game theory, like theory rich environments for crypto systems. So number one, uh, the, the basic premise is we need to think about anything that we build has to be incentive compatible for every stakeholder group that you want to participate productively. So uh, one one really big thing with which, uh, you know, I mean, Satoshi did an absolutely amazing job for which he deserves a Nobel Prize for creating Bitcoin. But there's a whole bunch of other stakeholder groups in a Bitcoin or cryptocurrency ecosystem that just aren't represented in a decision-making capacity and an economic reward capacity. Um, so the incentives aren't always there for people to behave the way that kind of early Bitcoin adopters hoped that they would behave. Um, so as we're going forward, we need to do a better job, maybe a more granular job of identifying stakeholder groups. And a stakeholder group, like we, we have to be very careful with definitions. What is a stakeholder group? How do you classify human beings? It's not like um, computer code where you just say, you know, define a class and then the class equals, you know, something and is very clean and, you know, clear cut. Um, human beings, we probably span thousands of classes of whatever, you know, definitions that we want to have. So how, how do we neatly, compactly define stakeholder groups? And then how do we think about these groups in terms of kind of correlated characteristics that then we can design systems to make sure that these correlated characteristics kind of are induced to behave in a way that we want them to behave long term? 
So what we've done with Zen is we've just added a very simple, you know, additional group here, a stakeholder group. Is we realize, well, we want to be massively distributed. So we want basically we want a, a Zen node in every home in the world at some point. So how do we start incentivizing this? And what we realized with Bitcoin was if you don't pay people to run very you know, in the long term, expensive pieces of software, you know, like as you get into tens of gigabytes worth of, of uh, storage on systems, you, you have to pay them to do this. So what we did is we set up this secure node system, which we just launched an, an additional node class called super nodes. And we pay that we pay people to run instances of our software. So this was kind of the the first like movement towards let's recognize that there's another stakeholder class that's underrepresented, and they don't have any economic reward. So let's start kind of splitting the rewards in the system so we can have uh, what we thought was a richer or more stable equilibrium. Um, but then it goes further beyond that. The, the voting system that you mentioned was, well, we have all these other stakeholders out there, essentially everyone that owns the Zen. How do we represent them? Like we have resources as an organization. We, we have a, a treasury system, which means that a part of, so 10% of every block reward now goes into a, a fund, a treasury fund. And so far we've had a professional team making all decisions for the, you know, for the system, you know, with inputs from the community, we have, we're very active with communicating with the community. We're very active in soliciting inputs, getting feedback, but ultimately at the end of the day, we've been making the decisions on where we go as a system. But what we want to do is democratize this. And this is where the voting system comes in that you just mentioned was uh, we wanted to build a game theoretic, rigorous voting system that, you know, acknowledges some flaws that we know exist in voting mechanisms and voting systems, uh, things like voter apathy. Uh, how do we overcome that? Quite simple. You pay people to vote, right? You have to have an incentive to vote or you're probably not going to vote. Um, in the political domain, we think about these like, you know, fuzzy incentives, like I belong to some some tribe called Democrats or some other tribe called Republicans, and I'm going to support my tribe no matter what. Uh, well, that that's not really a sufficient incentive, in my opinion, from a scientific perspective. And this is why we have mass voter apathy in the political domain. So we want to overcome this in the crypto domain. And we pay people to vote because we have now a system that can do that. Uh, we we want to overcome things like voting mechanisms where the, the mechanism itself influences the outcome of the election. This is something in game theory is very bad. We know this is very bad. But it happens all the time. Like, uh, I, you know, one classic example I always give is I have a lot of libertarian friends and I ask them, well, why didn't you vote libertarian? And they always say, well, it would be a wasted vote, you know, because you can see the running tally of the election. You could see that libertarians are maybe one, one to three percent of the vote. So why would you throw away your vote? But what we do is now we use ZK Snarks, the zero knowledge cryptography to obfuscate your vote. And so you, you cast your vote during a voting epic. Uh, and we can tally these things up and not release the results until the end. And because we have a blockchain, you don't want to do this in a transparent way or else you would be able to pre-tally the votes before the voting epic expires. So, so we, we use some of these very simple, like we, we, we apply technology and good economic incentives to try to overcome some, some issues, known issues with voting systems. So two questions for you, Rob, based on that. Number one is, if you have a chance, can you explain why uh, voter apathy would be a problem? You know, for a lot of people, they might think, listen, if you don't know about a topic, why even participate? And then the second right. question is, when you are incentivizing voting, one of the yeah. arguments that you might hear is, well, what do you do with uh, such a large group of people that have no idea what they're voting for, especially when right. they're like peripheral stakeholders, such as somebody who's just holding some Zen, which is clearly not as invested in the system as somebody running a supernode? Yes. 
Yeah, and this is such an awesome question. So, so democracy is not the the end all solution to all of society's problems. And this is this is something that I think that we we use the rhetoric of democracy to kind of gloss over a lot of deeper social problems or problems with these, you know, with any kind of uh, system. So we're, we're creating a liquid democracy. So the liquid democracy that we're doing, it, it includes a, a delegation function. So you can say, well, I, I have a lot of Zen or I have some Zen. I don't know anything about software development. So I'm going to delegate my stake to like the chief engineer from, from this team that I trust. Um, so that's something that you can do now w- with our system. So that's that's to try to you know, like the goal here is to create an emergent class of specialists that people trust and have like uh, social credibility or social equity in the community, um, and you can delegate your voting stake to them. This is not a perfect thing at all because you can you can imagine on on the margin there's lots of you know potential issues. Like you know one thing that I say is. Uh, like we're we're going through a big what we call a brand expansion right now, which is sort of like a rebrand, but really we're not ditching our past heritage. We're kind of expanding the brand a little bit. And now this is a big thing for the the ecosystem. Like we're we're changing or enhancing our our brand, and you have to think like which stakeholders are providing input here. Who has the the decision making authority to say, "Yep, this is it. This is the brand that we're going with," and here are all of the you know the kind of nuances of this brand. And the approach that we've done is we hired specialists, uh, experts. So we, we have marketing experts within our, our current team, and we augmented that team with true branding specialists, like brand like guys who they make their living doing these types of branding decisions. They have proven track record. They're like the, the neuroscient or the, the like, uh, what do you call them? Like the brain surgeons of, of marketing, of this brand of marketing. So we could have said, well, Let's do just a broad kind of cross-sectional vote across our community and see what name people think is cool. Or what we did was we brought an expert. So it's like, you know, if you have like a, you know, a tumor in your brain, are you going to just kind of solicit like a broad cross-section of the society and say, what do you guys think we should do? Or do you solicit the brain surgeon to do something about it? So this is, this is a very delicate problem that we have with any voting system, especially in a distributed environment. So we're, we're trying to tackle it. I guess the, our, our general theme to solving problems is we develop hypotheses, we want to rigorously test hypotheses, and then we implement like a a scaled down version of the hypothesis. So what we'll do is we'll we'll implement a scaled down version of our voting system with maybe uh, some fraction, not the total amount of the the treasury budget and see how it behaves. And then go from there and try to iterate and pivot on, um, you know, things that maybe aren't working well, uh, so that we can have kind of more robust versions of it as we go forward. So, I don't know. Did, did I answer your question? Sometimes I just go off on tangents. Sorry. Sorry. No, you did. That was awesome. Yeah. I want to point out one thing that was really exciting about that. Think about the, especially if you're one of our US listeners, think about it having the option to pull your vote away from the representative that you've chosen yeah. if they start to no longer represent your interests. Yeah. If you've put somebody in office, they start to change and you're like, all right, I'm going to pull that vote away from you and start using it myself. Or give it to somebody yep. else who I think isn't doing that. That's that, yep. that would be that would change the game. It's not a binary choice either. It's not like you either have Hillary or Trump, right? It's like now you have Hillary, Trump yourself, or a thousand other people that want to want to work on your behalf. So they're actually exactly. accountable to you. So Rob, I have and a, to speak to. Go ahead. Wait, sorry, I want to throw one more thing in there because this is a crypto basic podcast. And to speak to incentives, I have not voted in any election except the last one. And the reason I did was they had red velvet donuts at the uh, at the election <laughs> or, or at the precinct. 
and, and I did go cast my vote for Gary Johnson, so I did the libertarian thing. I just uh, I probably wouldn't have done it if they didn't have red velvet donuts, but that's all it took. Just one little incentive <laughs> got me off the couch to go do it. So this is more of um, kind of like behind the scenes question, but I think a lot of people listening would also be interested. When you guys are working on a voting system like this, for example, and you say like, well, you know, we want to test it rigorously, we want to model it. Can you just give us an idea of how the process goes where like if you make a change, do you then have somebody whose job it is to pretend to be each member and to try to cheat the system, like to put mm-hmm. themselves in the ch- in the shoes? Because every little change you make affects the entire network. So how do we how do you guys find the the possible leaks in the changes, basically? So here's the beauty of open source is, you know, you can crowdfund, um, you know, uh, basically ethical hacking of your own system. So we, we're, we're not even there yet. So really, the way that we're doing is we just um, matured a prototype of the voting system. So we have the technical prototype. Now from here, we're going to mature the, the prototype a little bit further and then take this to like more rigorous, like let's hack it. Now, now, not just hack it from the technical perspective, but let's try to hack it from the economic perspective right. uh, and see, like, really, what are the different kind of permutations of, very, you know, the, the, what's the, the variability domain here that we can try to kind of attack to see, like, how can we manipulate the system? So for me, in the economic or political sense, what hacking means is you can have stakeholder capture. And this happens in the real political system all the time. So like, I would say that of the 200-something countries that exist in the world, most of them have like their system politically captured by some dominant stakeholder group, whether that stakeholder is a dictator and his family or that stakeholder happens to be some tribe of a political affiliation and some like elite subset of that tribe. Um, so we, we have dynastic families in the U.S. even. So it's not like we're really immune to this sort of thing either. And not even dynastic families, but we also have very strong stakeholder groups. Like, why do we have ethanol subsidies in the U.S.? Like, you know, or corn subsidies right. for the ethanol industry. Like th- this, this is insane. Like it's proven that this is, you know, negative for the environment. It's proven to be economically stupid, but we have very powerful corn farmers in Iowa that happen to have disproportional like uh, influence on like the early primaries. So, right. so you see politicians catering to this one specific stakeholder class, but th- this, we, we can decompose us society, which I'm more familiar with into, you know, maybe like a few hundred, you know, dominant stakeholder groups that all capture the, they're a little slice of the system in a way that is, you know, economic or like socially very like suboptimal and like very harmful for society at large, but very good for them. And this is like the thing of, uh, I think Milton Friedman said this was like, whenever you have very concentrated benefits and very diffuse costs, you're always going to see in equilibrium, the, the small group with concentrated benefits dominate with whatever they're trying to do in a political system, because they just have the incentive, like they have very strong um, benefits from doing something, even if they expend a little bit of resources, they'll have disproportionate ROI on it. But as a society, if you have like an extra 50 cent tax, what do you care? Right? It's not worth your time to mobilize to stop it. Right. Yeah, because it's a bunch of distributed interest, a bunch of people with a very slight interest in it compared yeah. to a concentrated group with strong interest. Exactly. I'm really interested in hearing you use the term hacking for both the you know technical hacking of a system, but also the manipulation or exploitation of a system. Yeah. And I would even argue, like this might sound really ignorant because I'm not a developer, but it would seem to me on the surface that 
the non-code part is actually much more difficult to handle because at least the code is constrained within itself. So it seems like making unhackable an unhackable code is probably a less difficult problem than pre- preventing something from being hacked from literally anything like outside the like yeah. once you're outside the system is is emergent. So like how could let's say for example Satoshi predict you know ASICs for mining yeah. the shot like that's not how do you yeah. even plan for that? And even if you plug that. It's everything is outside the system, so people will always find a way. There's always going to be creative people looking to exploit your system. Yep, totally. No, I, I completely agree with you. And then it's like, I mean, there's really no way because there's a lot of exploits that don't even exist right now. But if you create a system, then they will exist. So it's like, I mean, how do you figure that out? And then you have to think about like the, you know, and this is always the, the, the difficult thing about like modeling economies is like, you can have something where it's like, okay, let, let's do this one, this one program, political program, this one policy. And then how do you, like, we can maybe look at the proximate effects of what we want it to be versus maybe what it is. But then it's much harder to think about, like, what's the secondary effect, the, thir- the third order effect? And you're like, what's the nth order effect here? We have no idea. Like, there's no way to possibly model this stuff. <laughs> And then once it happens, everybody looks back and they're like, yeah, well, of course that was going to happen. We should have seen that. Here's all the reasons. And then they try to reprogram it backwards and act like they were experts. Yeah. yeah and, and that would be even better than the reality. The reality is like they, they misattribute the, the results from what the causes actually were. So it's like, OK, well, healthcare sucks in the U.S. Well, it's probably because we don't have enough like controls on the system, whatever. I mean, like and, and not, not to go down to politics, but like we, we have very like, you know, very nuanced um, responses to policy. And you can start a policy in the 1960s that has ripple effects in 2020. Um, and there's no way to really like, trace the causality there because there's so many like interacting effects that accumulate over time. So I don't know. Th- things are very much more complex and dynamic than, you know, even if you, you know, rewound the, the Rob Viglione of 10 years ago would have been much more black and white and said, no, this this policy is bad for this reason. You know, and, and I still think that a lot of policies are, are bad or negative because they have a lot of unintended consequences that people just don't understand. But I guess now I, I have more of a appreciation for the nuance out there. And it's always building off of itself, right? So it's, yeah. it's kind of like an evolutionary process in the sense that Mother Nature doesn't get to start from scratch and societies right. rarely get to start from scratch. I mean, you have a few isolated incidents where, yeah. you know, oh, we got to America, we get to start a new government. But for the most part, yeah. any law we pass today has to interact with the laws of the last 200 years. So yep. all the connections, yeah. all the ripples is infinite. Can, can I um, piggyback on this and say we're actually about to have an opportunity to see how to build societies from scratch? Uh, there's the Seasteading Institute <laughs> that, that uh, I'm, I'm actually fortunate enough to be an advisor on a commercial offshoot called Blue Frontiers. They were trying to build like the first like offshore um, you know startup society, and as, I shouldn't say first offshore one. Polynesians have been doing this for a while, you know, for like thousands of years. So we're a little arrogant, you know, the Silicon Valley folks to say, no, we're, we're doing this from scratch. The first island nation but, ever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but the, the premise here, though, is imagine if you could re-envision society and like consider society as a startup. And now how would you build this? You probably wouldn't create Washington, D.C. with like a million different laws and each law has 10,000 pages to it or whatever. Like this would not be the way you would start from scratch. Um, so I, I encourage people just to check it out. If this is an area like startup societies is something that has any interest to you. Um, this would be a cool, a cool thing to check out. 
Um, you know, because I, I think that we have an opportunity to really uh, reimagine the way that we would do society instead of thinking like, I used to be a little bit pessimistic about uh, about politics uh, pre-Bitcoin. I, I was pessimistic. Post-Bitcoin, I don't care anymore because, you know, I, I used to be one of these people that said, you know, we have to end the Fed. This is like an urgent thing. End the Fed right now. You know, now, now with Bitcoin, I, I don't care. I think, you know, there's a lot of potential social problems out there. But now the first time or, you know, we, we have a very credible alternative economy in, in the crypto economy. It's peer-to-peer. It's international. We don't necessarily have to care what some, you know, regulator in Kazakhstan says some, you know, Kazakh could do, right? Like we can just include that person in in our economy. So you know, this is something I think is a breakthrough for humanity. But then I, I think in the physical domain, this whole startup society movement is is absolutely critical. We have to combine what we're doing in the d- digital domain with the physical domain, and this is where I, I think the real sweet spot for humanity is going to come. Yeah, we don't have to gloss over this. Yeah, go ahead. Let's talk about seasteading for a little bit. Yeah, what's awesome is I wrote this down in the outline. I was like, I want to somehow fit this into a game theory episode. (laughs) I don't know how. And then you just like did it for me. uh, One of the things that that really excites me about this is you're going to have an opportunity if when these movements go forward to move wherever your political ideals align. So like if if you are libertarian, go to the new country that aligns with your values if you are progressive go there and see and now you're not stuck in the kind of crappy decisions that most political systems have and but and then there's another interesting thing that once you once you get to the new location and now everybody's political ideals are more or less aligned with yours now you've got really 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 nuanced things that you're going to be voting for mm-hmm. and decisions that you're going to be making like the now you're re- that's a, that's going to be another interesting dichotomy of splitting the hairs when everybody agrees that uh, let's say you should have universal health care okay everybody agrees yeah. on that but now we have to tweak all these little things in it and how's that going to work out so i don't know super yeah. interesting to think about that i think we did this weird episode where we transported to the future and we had <laughs> Like we, it was like 15 years from now. We started talking about, I don't remember actually, it might've been longer than that, but we were like talking about how many nations there were. And we were like, yeah, now there's like 800. We, we changed ICOs uh, yeah. to initial country offerings. <laughs> it was That's what we're doing with seasteading basically. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I really see it yeah. happening. Like I really see nations popping up yep. and maybe even using the ICO model of doing it. Yep. Absolutely. Rob, I have a technical question for you. And this, this might mm-hmm. seem like a silly question since you, this is something that you're working on. But I remember watching a video a couple of years ago. It's from a YouTube, uh, like it's a mathematics YouTube channel. I think they're called Number File. And one of the things that they were talking about was essentially the concept that electronic voting would never be safe because all of the different attack vectors. And it was basically making the argument like this is really not a road you want to go down on. Paper ballots are the only way. Now, but I remember watching this kind of pre-blockchain or at least pre-my knowledge of blockchain and, and reading about what's being worked on here. So I wanted your opinion. Do you think that truly safe, verifiable electronic voting is, is an achievable future through blockchain or do we need something like paper ballots always? No, of course it is. Like it's, uh, and this is what I don't understand about people like that they can impose these artificial limitations. Is so I, I, I also was involved with um, you know security for the Afghan elections of 2014, and I, I can tell you, paper ballots are no you know, <laughs> no uh, magic bullet to stopping uh, fraud 
or you know other negative uh, instances. So paper ballots have their own massive attack vectors to them. So you know if you're going to, and this is often what we get is like, let's go ahead and condemn something that could be new and innovative. Well. I think psychologically because it's different. Um, but at the same time, you can only do that if what you have currently is perfect, which of course it's not perfect. So let's keep on trying to innovate and change things. It, it, I, I, I didn't see that episode, Kareem, so I, I can't say exactly what, what his arguments against the, you know, the threat vectors for electronic voting are. But I mean, what we're doing with blockchain and we do have ambitions to pilot this in the political domain, you know, you can have fully auditable, you know, transparent with privacy, which sounds like a, you know, a, a weird dichotomy there, you know, system that just, I guarantee you will work. And if it doesn't, if the first one doesn't work, we'll have a V2 that works. And if the V2 doesn't work, we'll have a V3. So what we should never do ever, ever, ever do is condemn some technology. So we should never take a current snapshot of, of a tech of technology and extrapolate it into the future in, in like a linear thinking fashion, just does not never do this. So never impose artificial constraints on something. If we have some natural physical constraint, like the speed of light, sure. And even that, you know, we're trying, you know, it's really trying to challenge. Um, that's different. But we should never in the social domain impose some constraint and say, this is impossible. Like, hey, libertarian society could never exist. You know, come on, guys. Like, we're going to give it a shot, like on a seastead somewhere. Or even like, you know, universal basic income could never work. Well, no, we'll, we'll give it a shot on a seastead somewhere. Like, um, you know, or, or universal health care. Like, we'll, we'll give it a shot on a seastead. Like, uh, anything that you can say. And, and this is, and I challenge myself. So I was talking to uh, one, one guy yesterday who was saying that we need to challenge everything. And therefore, this is the way the world works. Well, I, I was thinking, well, Hey, I'm skeptical of your skepticism, first of all. So, like, you have to be, yeah, we have to have multiple orders of skepticism here. Like, just because someone says, I'm skeptical of this, and then they propose something different, doesn't mean that we shouldn't be skeptical of what they're talking about as well. Right. So, you know, the world is very complex. We will for sure have a blockchain based voting system that works um, with it, with some function, you know, in some domain very well. Uh, whether or not this can be imposed, like or not imposed, but used uh, for a nation state, I have no idea. I'm very optimistic. I see no reason why we should discount that possibility. It just wouldn't make sense to me. So one of the only other things I'll add there is, I don't know if you guys have followed, but there's been a couple of stories recently about, I mean, these stories have been around for a while, but they're popping up again about how vulnerable our voting machines are here in the States. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that makes you roll your eyes, but at the same time could be the potential, is the fact that since it's this federal system, we could see maybe some small municipalities or states start uh, adopting this technology since their elections are completely independent. You know, like it, like thinking of the United States using this uh, right now just seems like an impossibility, like would be yeah. one of the last countries. But when you say something like, hey, would a random district in California possibly implement this and then all of a sudden become a proof of concept? Yeah. That seems like a much more likely possibility even within the next decade. I don't know if that sounds insane. I'd say within the next year. <laughs> That's, I mean, I, I guarantee you it's going to happen. And I, I would bet the timeline is much more compact uh, than, than we think. Wow. <laughs> That's a bomb drop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I feel like, didn't we report on one of the, somebody already planning to do it, but not for this election? But it wasn't, I, I no, but it was in the States though. I, we, we've talked about <clears throat> other countries trying to implement yeah. it, but like that, that's always seemed more reasonable to me because smaller countries are going to have more flexibility, you know, yeah, like right. getting this approved in the 
world empires, let's say, like the United States, is a different story. That's a strong legacy system with, like you said, a lot of stakeholders that have a lot of power. Mm-hmm. But how many thousands of municipalities do we have in the U.S.? So I bet you there's a lot more flexibility there to try something. And I would bet that the first municipal election to use this tech won't be using it necessarily for the the, the official political thing, but maybe for something like, you know, some other, you know, polling situation where maybe it's something like at the school election level or some, you know, some, some other like civic election that maybe pilot it with and then kind of transition from the civic election to something in the political area. I would love to see that a hundred percent. All right. One of the things you mentioned too, in our chat was the equilibrium of the node system. You said that there were some economic aspects to that. Oh, right. Yeah. So this is something I find very interesting. And we, we really don't know the answers yet is um, so I, I bet that the stakeholder groups that we call miners and node operators have some some correlated characteristics that are, are slightly different from each other, um, you know, in, in, in the behavioral and the economic sense. So I, for instance, even just uh, the, the simple constraint of miners have very high electric costs and operating costs that they need to constantly sell some of their inventory that they're mined to pay their operating expenses. So if you look at like in Zen, so Zen miners have to sell like some percentage of Zen every essentially every time period that they have to pay their their bills. And node operators have different costs, uh, arguably much lower cost for setting up nodes. You know, yeah, there's obviously a staking requirement, but that's not really a cost, that's an investment and an asset that is yours and you can sell it at any point. So I would I would bet that the, fir- the my first prediction is that the marginal propensity to sell your Zen that you receive from block rewards will be lower for node operators than for miners. Um, that, that's my hypothesis. And, and I think that it's, it's, there's two components to it. One is the, the cost of operations is lower for node operators. And I bet that there's a behavioral element here as well as a lot of miners are sort of mercenaries in the sense that they, they just kind of at least like the, the very professional miners, they dynamically point their rigs to whatever has the highest ROI at the moment. So they don't really have like a vested interest or like a, a psychological vested interest in a project. You know, some of them. There's obviously, there's another group of miners, some subset of that, that, ha- that mine for, you know, because they want to support a project. Uh, but then you have the professional miners that are mining. So within the professional miner class, they just, you know, they get their inventory and they sell it uh, to cover operating expenses or they sell it for other reasons to diversify. Uh, it's very rational. It makes sense. I, I I posit that the node operators, there's going to be a professional class of node operators that are sort of like this mercenary mentality. But I would bet that the composition in that in that community, like the subset of node operators that are behaviorally attached to the project, it would be greater than than for miners. And this is purely my hypothesis. So this is like I'm very interested in seeing like. Uh, the, the, the dynamics and how we achieve some sort of equilibrium over time. And the reason I brought it up was because we just made our first, well, a really big payment to node operators yesterday. So we increased our, yeah, there you go. <laughs> I'm sure you're happy. <laughs> but uh, so we increased our secure node rewards from three and a half percent of block rewards to 10%. So it was a much bigger payout. And this was our first payout for super node operators. So we paid out, I think it was something like 12,000 Zen yesterday. And I was sitting there as we were doing the payouts thinking like, oh, man, is this 12,000 Zen going to just be dumped on the market? Are we going to have kind of a big sell off on Zen because, you know, the node operators got paid and they're going to dump? And we didn't see that. Um, So we we definitely like Bitcoin's been down the last two days. But I would say given our beta relative to Bitcoin, which is our, our 
our price sensitivity relative to Bitcoin price, it was nothing out of the ordinary at all. So we didn't see like a big dump in the market from node operators. So it's kind of, you know, anecdotally goes towards my hypothesis. Well, just to play off of that, there's another incentive that I would consider, which is the fact that if you're a miner, the amount of Zen that you have is completely independent and irrelevant of your ability to make money. What matters is your computing power. Whereas if you're a node operator, yes. you're essentially functioning as somebody who's buying yes. stock. So reinvestment is essentially compounding interest. Completely agree with you. That, that's a great point. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. Yeah. So, having and, enough nodes to start creating more nodes every so often. Yeah, all you're thinking about is like, yeah. <laughs> if this is going to pay yeah. out this good, let's just create another one or save up for a super node or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And then the other thing is on the security side is, so really the whole point of mining, like really the point of mining was to create a, a, a sewer or as, as close to a real random process as you can to distribute new coin supply and then to secure the network with some consensus mechanism. So you can't just like, you know, inject in double spends or fraudulent transactions. But the, the first part there, the whole random process to distribute the new, new uh, coin supply. Um, I, I like the fact that we have it two new uh, classes of, of uh, stakeholders here, secure node operators and super node operators, is they are a distinct class of stakeholder from miners. So I, I like the fact that the new coin supply is, is being more distributed. Like ultimately, like in, in the most censorship resistant decentralized system you can imagine, everyone in the world would have an equal amount of Zen. Um, you know, we, we're, we're not gonna hit that utopian model, but the more that we can push out and decentralize stuff, the better. And the, the, the threat vector that people always cite with ASICs is imagine if Bitmain just dominates with ASICs, they're a monopolist, which is no longer true. Um, they're, they're not a monopolist in Equihash ASICs anymore. But imagine they were. Imagine they create some amazing miner and they accumulate all the new Zen supply. Well, then your system is susceptible to the stakeholder capture, particularly for us because we have a voting system that's stake weighted. So we, we have potentially um, a problem here. But now, by despite Dispersing the, the the new Zen or the the block rewards across more stakeholder groups, I think makes our system more robust. So I don't want to get overly dramatic here, but just listening to you talk about the different layers, the different node systems, right? And we were just talking about seasteading as an opportunity to restart society. And it really makes you think about like the founding fathers and the American experiment as an exercise in game theory, where they're literally like even the creation of the three branches of government in opposition to each other with separate like interests that are checking each other. It It's obviously they weren't discussing it in terms of game theory, but it's essentially what they're doing. And this is seems like the first opportunity to restart this process, but in the field of technology, you know, which is... Yeah pretty exciting it just it just feels like a historical turning point you know it really does, it does. yeah we, we really are no Krim, you're absolutely right and, and to go back to what brent was talking about earlier with seasteading is uh so combine these these concepts and i think the big thing here like the huge thing like if the founding fathers could get this right it would have i think changed things quite a bit but it's harder to do when you define your your jurisdiction by geography is with seasteading is you'll always have the right to exit and this is key Absolutely key. If you don't like the, you know, where the association of people that you decided to be with is going, then you can just exit. You can you can move your 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 little seastead module to a different one that has a different direction or a different path that you may agree with. And importantly, our our preferences change over time throughout our own life cycle. So, uh, you know, and this is like one gross overgeneralization. But oftentimes, when you're younger, you tend to be more 
uh, socially idealistic. When you're older and you have more at stake, like a family and resources, you want to, you know, be more conservative with this. So it's like your our own preferences over time, like at least on average in society, change throughout our lifetimes. So there's no reason to think that I'm going to go join some seastead, you know. <laughs> tomorrow and then want to be there my whole life. Maybe I will. Maybe I'll be around people that just evolve at the same rate that I do with my preferences, but maybe there'll be a divergence and I want to be in a different one. And a classic story in seasteading, and there's a great book by Joe Quirk uh, called Seasteading, actually, I recommend to people, is there's um, the Sacramento River. There's, I think, an annual an annual event where um, people would bring their boats, kind of like lash them together and party, basically, for a weekend. And it started off, like, you know, very small, and really fun. People were really enjoying it. And then over the years, as more people were coming, you have people joining that have different preferences than you. Um, and so what they would notice was there the, the preferences could sort of cluster around you had like you know bikers that wanted they were rowdy and wanted to party you had younger people that just really wanted to party hard and then you had like more like you know older people or maybe middle-aged people that were there for like a weekend away to like you know philosophize with their friends and have fine wine and they didn't really mesh in like a perfect way so they, they started having some frictions and the way they solved the friction was they, they split and they they would be sort of close to each other, but the the heavy rock metal music from like the the one the one crowd w- would be not disturbed like the the quiet solitude you know wanted from another crowd. And the cool thing was they could you know had free passage you know a- across different like their little versions of seasteads. And this was the key here was you, if you're not trapped and forced to obey other people's orders, I think society would be a much more peaceful like organized and productive place. So that's what we're trying to do with seasteading is you have the right to exit. No one can just force their preferences on you. So what we have in the land-based like political systems is, hey, the Republicans won this term and they're going to force their preferences on all the other Democrats and libertarians. And now the Democrats won and they're going to force their preferences on all the Republicans and libertarians. And note here, the libertarians always lose. But progressives I mean, like, as well. Don't worry. Yeah. It's, it's just a <laughs> yeah, exactly. party taking turns. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But the key is like, you know, we, we could all get our way and this is better. Like, it'd be great if all the progressives could you cluster together and implement policies that they, they want. And all the other people, you know, like Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, and you all just cluster together. And even within there, this fractionalization. So it's, you know, this would be a much, th- this is the future. This is where we're going. I would say because it's a dominant model, it will dominate over time, like a tautology in a way. It is for sure dominant in probably any dimension of like social structure that you can imagine, except for those that maybe are like certain stakeholder groups that captured certain systems today that want to perpetuate these bad you know, suboptimal systems because they benefit. But in aggregate, society would be so much better off if we had the right to exit and just kind of like free association with each other. Like, think about that. The number of times that I've made a post on social media or something like that, where I may have had some issues with something that's happening in the United States now, I I get told by a random Trump supporter, well, why don't you move? Why don't you leave? (laughs) I'm working on it, actually. (laughs) It's not that easy. Yeah, exactly. I I really have considered that. But why don't they, um, and, you know, and this is the thing, like what gives them the right to say, well, you have to leave. You know, I, yeah. I'm going to force my preferences on you. And if you don't like it, leave. So, Rob, I feel like this is a good transition. How does something like C-Studying <laughs> envision, um, mm. how do you implement 
the necessary things for a society which have traditionally been implemented through force. So like, let's say, for example, a society needs some kind of infrastructure or tax revenue, and we don't want to use coercion in order to enforce that. So what are the new incentive mechanisms to have people collaborate in something like that? Right. Yeah. So that's a great question. And my usual response is I'll kind of like pivot slightly and ramble a little bit and hopefully come back to it. (laughs) So let's think about like why you need, yeah. Why why do you need a system of taxation? It's because theoretically we have a set of public goods, which we say are beneficial to society at large, but maybe the incentive to contribute to fund these goods is not there individually. So this is the classic economic argument for public goods, which is often used, and I would say in a non-secure, to justify any type of taxation. Um, so, you know, taxation is meant to overcome this public goods problem. And, and there's some potentially unique set of things that maybe society benefits society that we may not have. But of course, there's a whole bunch of agency issues with, well, if we have some lump, lump sum, you know, bucket of money, it'll probably be used for a whole bunch of other things that are not in this like limited set of public goods. And maybe even this limited set of public goods is difficult to identify. And then who gets to control what this set, what goes into the set and who gets to control what resources are used to develop the set. And then the set probably changes over time. For instance, like public libraries were probably very important a hundred years ago, maybe not so important today with Amazon or in like all of the free content, like Wikipedia uh, available online. Maybe the, there's still residual value in libraries, but probably not the value to justify the, the massive capital expense for like a nation, you know, a, a national scale of like public library. And maybe there is, maybe there isn't, but the point is things change over time. So maybe even our ability to collect revenue changes over time. So even like who will build the roads, the classic like argument against libertarians. Well, now we have electronic like sensors that can scan your, your license plate and bill you directly. Right. So it's like even technology can evolve over time, which makes, you know, the, the set of things that we call public goods that require taxation is dynamic. It, it should not be static in, it, in any sense. Okay. So th- this is the justification for taxation. Now, how would we do this in like a startup society? Well, I, I don't know exactly. Like, and, and this is this is my argument is I, I may be a libertarian anarchist, but I don't think that I, I, I should be king tomorrow. And like, sorry, I, I don't have all the answers to society's problems. But what I think is really important is that we start challenging everything and trying more. So it's all about experimentation, like trial and error. So what I, what I, I, I've, uh, I joke with my friends now and I say, oh, yes, I'm a libertarian anarchist philosophically, but pragmatically, I'm um, like a, a, an empiricist with deep values. So I, I want to just try things. I want to try things out. I, I, I don't want to just be so arrogant to say, no, this is the best form of society because maybe we can pull something off very well in like a hundred person C-set of libertarian anarchists and we can figure out how to collectively join resources to do things that add this, you know, some of these public goods. Um, but maybe there's there's people out there that that would want more collective security. Like maybe there's people that truly maybe maybe a hundred communists on, on a seastead would have a pure communal resources and would function very well for them. So what is very important is that we have to recognize and value and just respect the, the cross-sectional heterogene, heterogeneity of human beings here. And this is the cool thing about seasteading is that we can start to do that. I'm so. going to try to make that a little bit more basic because that was a lot of information. I'm going to have a real-life example of something like this. Mm. When a bunch of my friends go out and eat, what we do is we play credit card yeah. game at the end for the bill, which yeah. is everybody throws in driver's license or credit card. We shake them up. And we find a way to pick who has to pay for everything, right? Usually, like an American people. Yeah. 
to some people that is insane. They yeah. they're like, why would I do that? I can't know what. And I've had people yeah. like argue like crazy, like what is wrong with you? Why are you doing this? And to me, yeah. it's a perfectly great way of settling a bill. Gets rid of all of the issues of okay, you owe seventeen fifty three, you owe twenty one thirty two. Yeah, some people sometimes are going to owe a little bit more than the others, as long as we're taking advantage of it. Who cares? Just do it randomly. Yeah. And and then uh, and other people are just completely thrown off by that. So when I go out to dinner with those the friends that we just do the game with, we do the game with them. And when I don't, we don't. So two different societies at the dinner table that yep. function off of radical ideas. Well, I guess yeah. just for the fun of debate here, though, uh, since it is a roundtable, I'll say that kind of in the same way that. I feel like, all right, so at the beginning with cryptocurrency and especially with Bitcoin, we we're talking about decentralization, right? And it gets taken to the nth degree where even now people in the space are starting to recognize, look, not every single thing is going to be more efficient or better if it's decentralized. Yeah. Something shouldn't be decentralized. And I guess one of the arguments would, that I would make is even though I'm extremely excited about the idea of being able to do a societal restart, I do think that if we look back at human history and we see how much progress we've done, a lot of that progress, I would actually argue the majority has been done by societies that have invested yeah. in the well-being of the people, whether that's through fire departments, police departments, security, roads, whatever. Yeah. You know, Now, I do accept the premise that there are there must be other ways that that can be implemented, but it's one of those things where like I haven't found... Um, I haven't found methodologies that would replace something like that, like your fire department, your police department, mm -hmm. your whatever, you know? So, so Kareem, I, I completely agree with you. And this is a, really a fantastic, like, uh, you know, um, point to make is uh, societies exist today for a reason. So, you know, especially in the libertarian anarchist community, we like to condemn, like, uh, no, th this is horrible. Like, look at all these inequities with the current system. Like, you know, my taxes are used to bomb kids in Yemen. And this sucks. Like, I hate that. Um, no, but we, we also have to, you know, realize we evolved to where we are today with, a, you know, a world of basically 200 plus nation states organized in a very correlated manner. Exactly. Maybe because it worked in some way. Like, it worked in many ways. In fact, there's probably this like multi-thousand year evolutionary process that got us to where we are for like to convince a billion, you know, seven billion human beings to just sort of peacefully coexist with each other in a, you know, maximally, maybe, maybe, maybe it's not like a, a global maximum. Maybe it's a local maximum fashion in terms of productivity. Maybe we could be more productive if we had a pure capitalist society or whatever, but you know, maybe it's like a, you know, some local maximum where like, you know, we're balancing a lot of other social, you know, concerns here. So yeah, maybe going back to your original question of like how you fund things like, you know, fire departments and police departments and things like that. I think that the, the structures that we have right now that, that work, now, I, I'm not as much of a radical person. I, I guess I like to see, like, so I like to challenge things radically, but it, from a pragmatic, like, a, a political perspective, I would never advocate that the U.S. turn into, a, like, an anarchist, you know, a libertarian anarchist society tomorrow. I would never do that. What I would like to see is let's start challenging things more actively and swing the pendulum, like, nudge the pendulum a little bit in the other direction towards a little bit more freedoms. And let's experiment, like, where we can. I think the place for radical experimentation are on small scale uh, stuff like seasteads. I don't think you want to do radical experimentation like on a nation state level, because I think that one thing that like the libertarian anarchists uh, of which I am, um, you know, often get wrong or like mis misjudge is uh, radical change isn't always good. You know, you could screw things up radically as well. 
And then with society is like, you don't want to screw up like, you know, even in like a small country with like tens of millions of people, you don't want to screw up the livelihood of tens of millions of people and like watch their assets collapse, their life savings collapse and have X number of people like murdered under some like social unrest. Like, so it's like, there, there's, there's very costly, there's high cost to experimentation socially, which is why I'm a huge fan of seasteading. I want to challenge things, but do it on a very small level. And if it works, then we scale it up. So things like we'll probably do like, private like fire insurance you know we'll, we'll probably have like private companies that bid for contracts with like a seastead and paid through some sort of collective like insurance mechanism we'll, we'll see I, I don't know because of course there's there's always like agency issues and like externalities that are imposed here you've got free rider problems like we, we know what the problems are um i just don't consider them showstoppers like we, we need to innovate around them Right. At least try because to there is a problem doesn't mean that yeah. we can't figure out a solution. Like that's what we do. You right. Know? Like in economics. So in classic economics, like if I were to teach a class right now in economics, we would, we would show like a, a negative externality from like privately paying for insurance companies or I'm sorry, fire, fire departments. You would say, well, you know, you've got some rich guy and a poor neighbor. The rich guy would buy like fire insurance through this company. The poor guy wouldn't. The poor guy's home would burn down. This is a negative externality. Or you can say the free rider problem. So maybe maybe a few guys in the neighborhood pay for insurance that covers the whole neighborhood. But now if you have a free rider problem, we show mathematically, well, on the extreme, like if we take the, the limit of this, well, now no one would be induced rationally to pay for a fire department. Right? Or but these are extreme. Could you even have a free market if it's an inelastic demand curve? Which is one of the arguments that, you know. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and let's not forget the classic economic argument like the market for lemons. So to an economist, a, a used car market should not exist, but it does. So so what I, what I always posit to economists is like, let's not get too wrapped up in the theory here because the, the world is so much more rich and dynamic than we give it credit for with simple math modeling. You know, I'm I'm going to piggyback off of that to give credit one more time to the United States form of government because <laughs> I can tell you that like as somebody that came from Colombia and yeah. you know, it's just a regular uh, it's like a regular system. So honestly, the 50 state government system and even that like just so broken down into so many little governments just seemed insane. The idea that you could have different laws in the same country just seemed yeah. inefficient. But Really, that's something where my perspective has changed the uh, the longer I've lived here, and I've seen how much precisely what you said you know true change is it's too much of a gamble to be just thrown into a major system of three hundred and thirty million people. But if you have yeah. microcosms in order to test out some of these radical ideas, it mm-hmm. really gives you a lot more flexibility for social change and it's yeah. it's brilliant in a in a self-assembling way i'm not even saying that it was designed necessarily but it's pretty amazing yeah yeah we have to challenge things to think like uber was a radical idea 10 years ago yeah and and if you ask governments should we allow uber like peer-to-peer ride ride sharing like of course they would all say no (laughs) but then you go and do it and show people like hey we didn't cause chaos we actually caused like millions of happy customers so, you know, that's, that's like the challenge. And maybe it doesn't work for everything, but, you know, at least on the margin where we can, we should challenge things. And with a group of people that all have similar ideals, it's more likely to succeed, which is, yeah. which is somewhat interesting because, like, if you take a group of, of all libertarians together, they make something work. That might not work if they have a massive yeah. opposition to the other side causing yeah. people to just, like, dig in. You know, we have stuff here where I guarantee you there are Republican – 
congressmen or lawmakers that would say, eh, you know what? Universal health care might be a big th- might be a good thing, but they can't vote for it. Just yep. the way that we're set up. So it's the adversarial system is interesting to see if the adversarial system worked out of you lose this person's tax revenue and they just go over here because it's super easy for them to do it. Yep. Now you have a completely different uh, dynamic of what you're yep. choosing to vote for or what you're choosing to implement. It's pretty. But let's look at the downside here, though, is I think we'll have much less warfare if we can't force people to pay their taxes um, to pay for war. So that, that could be a very bad thing if, if you think that war is a really good thing. Uh, that, that was a joke, guys. So like, sorry. <laughs> but I mean, that, that's that's kind of like an example of uh, there will be for sure a set of, of goods and services that we have today as a society that will not exist to the same level if you can't compel people to part with their resources. Like if you can't compel people to pay taxes, um, you know, then for sure we we probably won't be bombing people. You know, any countries that or, have nothing yeah. to do with us. Absolutely, exactly. Like if someone knocked on my door and said, "Hey, we we're thinking about invading Iraq, and you, you know, <laughs> if you like this idea, we need seventy five thousand uh, dollars." I would probably say, "No, I'm sorry. Thank you for the offer, but I don't want to invade Iraq today. I'd rather." you know, buy Apple stock. Even even transparency, you know, one of the things that we discuss in our game theory episode is that you can actually, the only way to truly influence somebody's behavior is through communication. So sometimes the, the best move is to, to just show your intent or show the reality, right? Think about the transparency if your tax bill was broken down into the expenses. I guarantee you yeah. that we would have a more mobilized uh, electorate if people yeah. just open up their taxes and saw that, oh, 30% of my money's being taken by the government and 15% of that yeah. is going to defense contractors. They wouldn't be okay with that. You know, but we just don't know. It's just it's just a big pile of money that gets given to an obscure group that gets to, you know, it's selected obscurely. It's it, Yeah. Um, so for sure, suboptimal for society, you know, but OK, going back to blockchain, we're building a very granular voting system where you vote on every proposal. So you vote yes, no or abstain for every single proposal. So it's not like, hey, I vote for Rob or I vote for Brent and they do whatever they want once they're elected. All right. So it's like, no, we, we can actually vote on exactly what we want. And you can and also what? I don't have to drive to the precinct with a number two pencil and bubble in my answers. It's a lot <laughs> easier to vote when and Rob, you just click I think you already said this, but I could also like, let's say, for example, that it's a vote on something that I'm not familiar with. I can give my vote to Brent because I trust Brent's opinion on the subject. And this and basically, if I gave my vote to Brent and he trusts you, he could give you Mm -hmm. his vote, my vote, and you would be voting for the three of us. Is that basically how fluid this system is? Exactly. And, you know, so the way I envision this is I want to challenge the nature of a corporation. So I want to see, can we create like an emergent class of executives that have basically earned it, directly earned it, and and they're not endowed with it forever. So it's like, you know, like if people like what I'm doing for the project, they can they can keep delegating their votes to me. The second they don't like what I'm doing, they, they pull that, that delegation away and it goes to someone else. So we have constantly like a, a system of accountability. And like, I just don't want... You're born to a wealthy family, so you go to Harvard almost automatically. You're given a job, like an amazing job at McKinsey Consulting because of it. And then, you know, your, your path through life is much more accelerated and you hit, you hit CEO status one day because of this like endowment effect. 
and you know, clearly pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Oh, right, right, right. Exactly. You know, it, now again, I don't want to be an extremist here, you know, but by, by no means do all executives in every company in the world, are they there because of privilege? There's a lot of people who've earned it and created amazing companies and just worked their butts off and achieved you know, amazing stuff. So we should not be extreme at all no, here on any edge case. All right. But what I would want to see is like an emergent class of executives. Yeah, no. And, and I don't think it would be extremist to say, you might disagree with me here, but 100%, there is a vast quantity of people who are in major positions because they earned them their way there. But we can also say, hey, the way that our system is structured right now is incentivizing improper behavior. Because if, for example, the CEO selects the board of directors and the board of directors select the CEO's salary and the CEO's salary, so, yep. and then all of a sudden, it doesn't, like, yes, yep. you can start out with a lot of people that earn their way there, but you're developing the game in such a way that the people who cheat are going to have the best advantage and that system is just going to naturally evolve into mm -hmm. a more and more corrupt system that has nothing to do with the individual values or abilities of the players in the game you know what i mean yeah well i, I think the key here is we need uh, like society is better off with as much competition as you can have now, of course, this is the divergence. Is as a business owner, you don't want any competition. You want a monopoly, right? As a society, though, we're all better off with like massive competition. Um, so, what I think, oftentimes, if we if we think that there's a system that's suboptimal, like maybe a system that's prone to capture, uh, I would I would posit that it, it's probably because there's some support mechanism in there by maybe by government or like the political system supports say corporations with either like some like limitations to new new entrant competitors perhaps maybe there's subsidies directly maybe there's some taxes like, there, there's some palette of advantages that i would argue that the political system confers to large corporations that enables them to like perpetuate the suboptimal behavior for society and i would say that you know we could now we could try to identify individually like what is this palette of benefits that corporations get and now can we start like removing them uh, or you know like which, which I, I argue is very hard because you know these corporations are very powerful stakeholders in society and they, they sort of capture the political system I would say. So that's where like we have a system that's like very, I, I don't know what the word is, like corporatist or something like you know, large corporations dominate politics in the US. At least. Yeah. And, and for sure, all over the world, this is the way the world works. I think right? how do we change this? 100% we could argue that we've now crossed into a part in human history where many corporations are legitimately more powerful than most nations. Not all nations. Yeah. Uh, definitely, obviously, yeah. you know, China, the United States, you know, the EU, but we definitely have players that are yep. just as equal as nation states in their ability to influence what happens in the world. Okay, so I have a kind of hypothetical along, but just go with me here. This is super <laughs> long term, but you made that comment about uh, you could see the change in as little as a year. So I really want you to let your imagination go here. How do you see this space affecting the real world politics? I'm talking about like 30, 40 years down the line. Do you see like a fractionalization of societies through blockchains? Like how, how powerful do you think this uh, change will be? And just give us an idea of what you envision. Totally hypothetical here, obviously. So I realize you're talking to an idealist. I came into this industry because of idealism, right? <laughs> so what brought me into Bitcoin is because I wanted to see the separation of money from state. So I was very excited for this because I, I was one of these people that said, you know, just rationally, 
you know, the central bank provides a massive amount of capital to governments that then could use this to go like start wars and all this other stuff that we, we deem socially suboptimal. So I was really a huge fan of separating money from state and competing this idea of money. So I think we have a few like very powerful like strands here, like moving into the future is uh, we're competing the idea of money. So no longer do central banks have uh, a, a monopoly. And, and, and maybe we should say oligopoly because there's maybe a, a dozen central banks around the world that really like dominate global money supply. Maybe a smaller subset that really, really dominate it. Um, but now we're competing that. Now, of course, it may not look like that right now, but I'll tell you, for me, is I've, I put my money where my mouth is a long time ago, and I migrated almost my entire financial life into cryptocurrencies because this is uh, ethically uh, where I want to be. But then economically, it worked out as well. And I think economically, it'll keep working out really well. But ethically, it, it, it makes me feel better is that my money, what, what I consider money and where I place my, my assets and my life's work is in a peer-to-peer -peer voluntary system. Versus one that's kind of like captured by a monopoly. And they could tell you that, and, and I've studied, I, actually, I studied under a brilliant uh, researcher, an academic researcher in banking who spent his career like looking at like uh, the effects of like monetary policy from the Federal Reserve. So I, I'm not as black and white anymore on like saying, hey, Federal Reserve is just evil. It's not evil. It has some pros and cons, right? But what's more important now is we have, we have choice, alternatives. So in the monetary domain, I think this is going to ripple into into like society very powerfully. Now, uh, the the first ripples will will appear in kind of like the stereotypical examples or prototypical examples we talked about, like you know helping people, giving people lifelines in Venezuela, you know, and other people in very like politically unstable environments. Now they have like a international standard that they could participate in financially and, you know, for the careers. Like we employ people within Zen even from parts of the world that are just very poor and they don't have opportunities. So this is for me something very powerful to look at the world as uh, humanity instead of like, no, I'm American, you're Serbian, you're from wherever. So therefore we should have some advantages. I don't think so at all. I think we're human beings. And I think that this industry will really accelerate the tearing down of artificial borders uh, that we, we construct socially. I, I hate them. I, I get it. Like human beings are very tribalistic. Uh, it's just our nature. We like to associate with people that have correlated values, correlated like skin color, correlated, you know, the same language and all these other things that, that correlate to us. We like to associate with and oftentimes we like to band together with people that have strong associations. I, I think that's not necessarily the best thing. I think it's fine if it happens voluntarily, but it's not so not so nice when like you start imposing like political barriers and you say, well, you're not allowed to have a job because you come from like the other side of this imaginary line in the sand, you know, like from Mexico, you shouldn't have the same job opportunities as some guy from Texas is insane. Uh, and this is why in this industry, we're, we're challenging big time. I don't care where someone's from. I'll hire them based on their talent and their enthusiasm. Um, so this is something that, and, and I don't have to ask for a permit to do that. I don't have to ask permission from anyone. I can just do it and pay them in cryptocurrency. So this is, I, I think, fast forwarding to the future. It, it is an amazing path that we're accelerating society. And what I like to look at is go 100 years in the future. Yeah, I bet people will look back at us as like savages for the way that we lived to think like, my God, like you, you put someone in a cage and separated them from their child because they, they crossed a, a line in the dirt. Like that, that's, that's savage, truly savage, but because people justify it for a number life. of reasons. 
Yeah, exactly. Because they wanted a better life for their family. And like, you know, so, you know, I, I and, and I get the, the reasons that, that people give for this stuff. I just think that they're, they're invalid from like a long term ethical perspective. They're very invalid. And economically, they're stupid. Like it is, it is not a good thing for, for even our own country to limit immigration. It's not a good thing for like global society to limit this stuff. So what we're doing in blockchain, I think is going to just open the floodgates of prosperity for so many people around the world. Couple this with like seasteading and these other startup society um, ventures. And I think we have a very bright future ahead of us. Hmm. Well, uh, I know you preface that by saying that you're idealistic, but I'm just going <sighs> to give a little boost, you know, my background is in history, and I think that one of the things that I try to get across to people is I feel too often uh, people's perspective is that we are in the end of history. That, like, it's almost like yeah. whatever's happening right they now, always have. this is what always. the world is like. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And it's almost like people underappreciate how yeah. much change has happened in such little time and how much current yeah. social constructs, even things like nation states, haven't yeah. been around that much in the big picture. Not when you yeah. look at the development and how quickly things are changing. So, you yeah. know, I know some people might listen to the idea that in 50 years, you might not have something like a Federal Reserve or in 100 years, some nation states might be broken. Like all these, it sounds so insane until you realize, like, just go back 100 years in the past and see how different things were and go back 300 years. Yep. And like, you're not at the end of history. We are right now going through one of the periods of most change. And it would actually be naive to think that things are likely to stay the same. That's actually the most naive position that we could take. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And then, so even this idea of like uh, ending the Fed or like no Federal Reserve 50 years from now, I, I would, I'm, I'm um, if I had to make forecasts, I bet and like the, 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 the composite answers. So I would say Federal Reserve will still exist, just much smaller footprint. Uh, and it'll have to compete with like a thousand different cryptocurrencies and uh, other other forms of money that maybe we don't even think about or can envision right now. So I, I'm, I'm a fan of, or not a fan of, but like I, I think that, Typically, the, the truth usually lies like somewhere in the middle, not like on on the, the edge cases. Yeah. And I guess the last thing I'll say, too, about the future is uh, I'm really excited to see how these decentralized treasuries end up influencing the system. I know it was just kind of like a tap. But one of the things that Dash did for a while and we talked about it on the show was they hired a, a journalist who, you know, it was just using the Dash logo and he was doing journalism and he was just somebody that mainstream media wouldn't hire. They ended up letting him go recently because it wasn't a positive ROI for the network anymore. But mm -hmm. it's still a proof of concept that these systems in the future, yeah. 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, all of a sudden you're going to have a decentralized funding mechanism yep. that is going to give opportunity to things that, you know, those stakeholders in our current society are just not interested in. Um, exactly. And that's really exciting. Yeah. yeah. And the thing is, they won't be all democratic either. Like, they're, 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 we'll probably see a future where you've had like pure liquid democracies and others with, with constraints and others where they're just like, you know, some really charismatic person that, that starts some system that has a funding model and he controls it all. Like a dictator, right? So, and, yeah, we'll probably, <laughs> exactly. But people keep giving them money, right? So it's it's that's that's society for you, right? Like, yeah. it, does it seem rational? Who knows? <laughs> we can. We only were just BSing about that the other day. Yeah. We're like, because they just bought BitTorrent. So we're like, did he raise enough money to like hire enough people to get out of this? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Well, I mean, we are going on an hour and a half, Rob. You know, I don't want to take too much of your time. Uh, oh, yeah. No worries. Uh, this has been fantastic. I don't know if, Brent, is there any other 
questions you might want to have or any other points. Sure, we could go on for another five hours. <laughs> <laughs> hey guys, any anytime you, you want to come back for some panel bantering, like I, I'm all for it. I, I love this. Oh, this, this is such is a fun time. Uh, this yeah. is fantastic, man. Thank you so much yeah. for your insight. It's really, really interesting to hear you talk about this. And I know, you know, just a little plug, you guys were just delivered your first actual working model of this voting system by IOHK. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yep. Correct. Yeah. When will the public kind of start getting their first views of at how this works? So we're, we're hoping, well, uh, views in terms of like demo, we'll have very, very shortly. We, we already have a demo video uh, ready. It's just a matter of um, how we present it to the public. Uh, now, in terms of usability, like for me, uh, I want to get this onto testnet sooner than later. So we're actually combining this with, uh, we've kind of um, optimized the project where we're combining the voting system with our first side chain. So you're going to see them delivered um, jointly, which will be very very big for the project. So we're working on that right now. And so the voting system will be our first side chain completely. We're hoping by, uh, you know, Q4, I, I would, I would try to be conservative and say towards the end of the year, we're going to have uh, an actual, you know, side chain with the, the voting system uh, in production, probably for test net, but production level code. All right. Well, we're yeah. excited to see that, and you can officially add to your uh, many jobs and descriptions uh, crypto basic panelists because we're going to open that <laughs> offer. But. Nice, awesome. Thank you, guys. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Rob. So, it gives you a lot of awesome. clout trying to get into conferences and stuff. Oh man, independent. Feel free to drop analysts with crypto basic. <laughs> yeah, don't worry about it. Go ahead. We don't let anybody do that. Yeah. Let them know. Let them know you're with us, Rob. They'll let you in. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. <laughs> All right, and thank you guys so much for listening uh, once again. This was Robert Viglione from Zencash and I was here with my co-host Brent Philbin. I'm Kareem Baruke and this has been an episode of Crypto Basic. Mm-hmm.